Welcome to the Generations Podcast, where we talk about key issues that divide the different generations and how the church can be a place where we unite. Each week we'll focus on a different issue that we see culturally and discuss how each generation is in a unique place to make a difference. We hope you can make the live class that happens every Sunday morning at Stonebridge Church. Here is Generations. So let's start out with some brief introductions real quick. Clay, would you mind just talking a little bit about yourself, your background, kind of what draws you to the conversation? So uh, my name is Clay DeWeese. I'm one of the pastors here at Stonebridge. Um, I turned 70 this year. So <clears throat> I, uh, I'm normally um, in the free at last class uh, teaching over there. Um, just kind of background because of my age, my grandparents um, dealt with the depression. I had a grandfather who was actually one of the boxcar kids who got, he was an orphan and he got shipped out from uh, New Jersey, an orphanage in New Jersey to become an indentured servant on a, on the farms in Iowa. And so um, all the way from that through the generation that uh, fought World War II and, and Korea, and then of course I was right in the heart of uh, the Vietnam War, that was, uh, I was in, a part of that draft and uh, um, didn't end up going, but um, so lived through a lot of that and the um, sexual revolution uh, and um, spent a, a lot of time When I got out of college, I was a uh, consultant for a number of years, a business consultant. Then I've been on staff now for about 19 years, uh, primarily in teaching positions, working with men, and I'm a small groups coach now. So, Very cool. How many of you came from Free at Last specifically to just egg on clay? We're just here to... (laughs) (laughs) I just mean... The, har- <laughs> the harvest people are not, throw eggs You didn't me. even have to ask the question. I know who they are. <laughs> you know who they are. Uh, and folks, my name is Ben Humanek. Um, so I, uh, I'm currently a teacher at the Woodlands High School. Uh, my background, I got a, uh, a bachelor's in English at Baylor University, and I also got my master's of education there. So my qualifications for this talk are that I can read, and then I can teach you what I've read. So <laughs> hopefully we are in good shape. Um, but we are here to talk about politics. And I'm really pleased to see the amount of representation we've got in this room. You didn't shy away from this. You came in force because we know politics matter. And I want to start you off by thinking about some words from G.K. Chesterton. Now, when I mention Chesterton, is anybody immediately familiar with the name? You've got an idea of who G.K. Chesterton might be. Okay. Dean, can you enlighten us just briefly, like, some thoughts on him? Negative. That's fine. That's good. Gordon, what about you? He's a well-known preacher. Just... Decades and decades ago. Decades and decades ago. So he was he was many things. He he was very uh, vocal in his commentary about society and culture. He lived in Great Britain in the 1800s and the early 1900s. Wrote many classic works, uh, including theological works like Orthodoxy, uh, works of political commentary, and fiction work like The Man Who Was Thursday or Man Alive. Um, and he had a wonderful relationship with irony. He delighted in seeing contradictions in everyday life, and he would use that to inform the political process in which he lived. And here's a quote that I love from Chesterton um, and that I think you'll find some value in as well. Um, I never discuss anything except politics and religion. There is nothing else to discuss. (laughs) Now, what I'd like you to do, you will have some discussion with people nearby today. We are going to pack about an hour and a half presentation into an hour. So I'm going to ask for some ground rules. If you've got thoughts or observations, please hold on to them for the time being. We'll have moments of discussion and moments where you can share. But if it occurs to you, save it for a second so that Clay and I can help you walk through the stuff we've prepared for you today. I do want you to discuss this, however. Please turn to someone nearby, and I'd like you to talk about this statement. What are your thoughts about, I never discuss anything except politics and religion? Do you agree? Do you disagree? Why do you think that? Please share. Please talk to each other. I'm going to bring you back in about three, 
something good or you're able to share something good, I'd like to just get a couple of samples from the room real fast. So what, what's something good that you heard or something good that you felt you were able to say? What do we have? Don't be afraid. He looks like a character. Yeah. And he also looks like he can be, we were talking about, the kind of person that if, when you get on a subject, if he thinks you're on the, that side, he'll get on this side. Oh, I mean, devil's advocate. <laughs> Chester Tim was over six foot tall. He was gargantuanly obese. I chose the most unflattering picture I could because look at that smile. That's <laughs> look at that smile. Yeah, it looks like the Quaker man. But he could command the attention of room and create good discussion. He was a frequent debate partner of George Bernard Shaw. If you're familiar with Shaw, he was a modernist. He wrote Pygmalion, among other plays. And, and they were good friends. I also didn't see things the same way. And he had a great, great relationship with that guy. So discussing politics and religion. I'm curious. What, what did you think about that quote? What thoughts do you have? Yes. Oh, I just went, eh. Eh. <laughs> Doesn't make a difference one way or another. It's like too many opinions. <laughs> too many opinions? Yeah, I'd be much more comfortable talking religion than politics okay. right now. How many of you would map that? You're like, I would be more comfortable talking about religion maybe than politics. Okay. Would anyone be venturing to say maybe the opposite? I'd be ready to talk about politics anytime. Okay. So we've got some people from different perspectives. How many of you find yourselves not addressing these, whether by intention or just accidental omission, in your conversations with people? You just really don't talk about religion or politics that much. And there are probably some good reasons for that, I would suspect, right? What is the number one reason this might not? Business. You mean it doesn't create b- good business relationships? Correct. You don't, you don't want to chase. Yeah. Or politics yeah. or religion. You don't want to chase away business. So if my so job is to form relationships. Let's look in context. Here's why Chesterton thought what he thought. I never discuss anything except politics and religion. There's nothing else to discuss. Nothing of importance can be separated entirely from its social effect, which is politics, or from its ultimate value, which is religion. There is some truth in this. Now, politics is a fraught word, and we want to dive into this a little bit before we understand why we're here and why we're talking about it today. I want you to think about the meaning of the word politics. And as an English teacher, I'm here to tell you, when it comes to meanings, you've got two kinds. You've got denotation, which is the dictionary definition of a word. And you've got connotation, which is the positive or negative meanings you associate with that word on top of the dictionary definition. So if you don't mind taking a second to talk to a neighbor again, when you hear the word politics, what are the meanings you associate with it? Positive, negative, or neutral? If you can share that, and then I want to hear a few samples from you real quick. Just talk. And I'm more than happy to call on you because you printed off name badges when you came in here and you did not know that would be your Waterloo today. I know some of you don't. So what are some definitions you might have for politics? Some meanings associated with the word. Structure. Structure. Okay. Positive, negative, or neutral? Yes. Depends on politics. What environment? That point. I would say structure is a neutral term, right? Like we want a thing to have structure, but is it the right structure? Right. Right. What else do we have? Yeah. We saw both sides. We saw okay. infighting, okay. controversy, the negative, but the positive is change. Okay. So there's a negative side, there's maneuvering, there's there's power mongering, but there's also change, and change can be beneficial if it's applied well. Okay, sure. What else do we think of? Yeah. Our youngest representatives said arguing. <laughs> now, is that telling? Mm-hmm. Oh, sorry, I said debate. Like, I was just like, debate? Like, people like arguing or debating. Contention. All right. Yeah. Okay, so we got a couple of things going on here. Now, I've shown you a picture because I want you to infer something about politics. Uh, this is the Acropolis, and the Acropolis is found in Greece. And when you look at the 
antecedents of Western civilization. Greece is a place we start because that's where we saw people start to migrate together into large communities and to decide things together, right? So the Greek word polis means people. And it's appended to the names of cities, like fictionally, if you read Superman comics, he lives in Metropolis, like the, the metro city of the people. Um, politics is simply deciding what works for the people, right? We come together as the people, and we decide as the people what is going to work best for us. Now, if you get in a room with a lot of people, is everybody going to be guaranteed to have the same viewpoint? No. So politics is a lengthy process because you must take into account different perspectives before you decide what is right for the society in which you live. One of the most famous works on politics is Plato's Republic, wherein, subtitled The Just, by the way, Plato simulates a dialogue between Socrates, his mentor, who was executed for stirring up the thoughts of the youth of Athens, and these guys who come to Socrates, and Socrates is like, what's just? And they have this big book-length conversation about what justice looks like in Greek society. And do you know what Plato, through Socrates, prescribes as the ideal form of government? A benevolent dictatorship. That's true. <laughs> And it's true because Plato thinks if you've got the right person who is wise, he'll understand or she'll understand the needs of the society and will understand how to apportion out the roles correctly to the members of that society. I would suggest to you as Christians, you sign up for a benevolent dictatorship. Yes? You live for the kingdom of God, which is governed by Jesus Christ, who is much wiser than you and I. And his form of government is absolutely perfect. And we are living as advanced members of that kingdom to come trying to simulate what that kingdom looks like on earth. That being said, you live in a culture that is not a benevolent dictatorship, and that's probably really good, right? Because we wouldn't agree with the dictators that are put in front of us. We live in a representative democracy. We live in a republic, and we've got a voice in that process, but that takes time. And so here's the first thing we must agree on when we get into this conversation. Politics is work. It is not sport. It is not entertainment. It is not something to avoid. It is work and it is necessary work. And as free people in a society that considers your voice, it's work we must be well prepared for. So let's talk about some of the challenges that we might face as we get ready for politics. This is a bonus slide that I didn't edit out. All right. How should Christians discuss politics in light of our religion, especially when we cross generational lines? This is the big question we want to try to answer today. So let's define some terms. I'm going to throw some Merriam-Webster at you. And Clay and I have already discussed this. He's going to have some commentary on some of these definitions here because we want a full perspective on this. Merriam-Webster tells us, conservatism, initially defined as a disposition in politics to preserve what is established and as a political philosophy based on tradition and social stability, stressing established institutions and preferring gradual development to abrupt change. Now, if we take a 30,000-foot view and we stop with these two definitions here, how many of you think a reasonable person might agree with this, regardless of who they are? How many people love abrupt change? That's just their favorite. <laughs> Some of you are disruptive. For the most part, the average person would say the institutions that work should be allowed to continue to work, and change should be something that's done at a reasonable pace. That's, an that's a definition of conservatism we can often agree on. Where it gets more fractious is the specifics. Again, from Merriam-Webster, such a philosophy calling for lower taxes limited government regulation of business and investing, a strong national defense, and individual financial responsibility for personal needs such as retirement income or health care coverage. Now, many of us would probably agree with most of these statements, but if I took a cross-section of the American public, would everyone naturally agree with this in such a way that they might agree with this? Different perspectives on this. Similarly with liberalism. I want to show you a general definition and then a specific. Generally speaking, liberalism is a political philosophy based in belief in progress, the essential goodness of the human race, and the autonomy of the individual in standing for the protection of political and civil liberties. Now, some of you who are well-versed in this room might be comfortable with the term classical liberalism. How many of you have heard that term before, classical liberalism? That, in fact, is the liberalism with which the Founding Fathers operated. They believed in the rights of the individual. They believed in guaranteeing civil liberties for that individual, ergo our Bill of Rights in our Constitution. This is a definition... Again, most reasonable people would probably be comfortable with this regardless of their political perspective. Would you agree? We agree on the autonomy of the individual. That's important. But they have rights that are protected. Where we get into the fractiousness is a philosophy that considers... This is where the air goes out of the room, right? <laughs> Government is a crucial instrument for amelioration of social inequities such as those involving race, gender, or class. Now, Clay, if you want to speak to these definitions real quick. Conservatism, liberalism, let's, let's talk about this for a second. What are your thoughts here in terms of how we... These. Well, I think um, the way you've presented it here, Ben. Um, no, it's Webster. That yeah. 
you know, I think there is common ground in both of these. Um, even if you would, I would consider myself a conservative, but but um, I think there is, uh, when it comes to the um, belief in um, individual rights and civil liberties, conservatives would embrace that. Yeah. Um, and so uh, I don't know that we would see in today's um, society that these definitions are being reflected in how people are, are um, uh, being portrayed as conservative or, or liberal. Mm-hmm. Um, the one thing that struck me originally with the conservative um, definition was um, <clears throat> it sounds pretty boring. Who would ever want to just stay in the same place all the time? Nothing changes, um, and 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 I would and 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 I would take issue with that definition in terms of what conservative conservatism is about. I don't think it's so much based on tradition, unless tradition is reflective of. Uh, believing in holding on to those things that have seemed to work over the years. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I think an interesting uh, paradox we find: uh, some people who are progressive on the environment are actually fairly conservative when it comes to the environment, right? And they would prefer for um, established institutions gradual development to abrupt change. And this has some interesting precedents. How many of you in this? How many of you in this room um, attended school at Texas A and M University? <laughs> and what is the value of tradition at A and M? Oh, extreme, like scary extreme. <laughs> scary extreme. <laughs> Great amount. Of I, I think for those of you in a relationship with somebody, you've got a spouse, you've got a significant other, you will find that if you kind of thin slice it, one of you tends to be a little bit more on like, let's not change so fast. And one of you is like, no, let's try some things out. I think that works on a micro level as well as a macro level. And if you're in a relationship, you know, that's a dance that takes a little work, right? Multiply that times many more people and you've got more work to do. Now, again, we're going to talk about Chesterton a lot today, so I hope you're comfortable with that. Chesterton uh, said in 1924, the whole modern world has divided itself into conservatives and progressives. The business of progressives is to go on making mistakes. The business of the conservatives is to prevent the mistakes from being corrected. (laughs) What a tweet. I don't know how you view your representatives or our government here, but you may find a small kernel of truth in this. I'm not certain. Um, Now, we've collected some data for you as far as conservative and progressive views and what they're looking like in America today. And there's a couple of trends that we want to illustrate for you before we talk about how generations can talk to each other. So if you'll indulge us, this is where... We've got a lot of info. We're going to go quickly through it. And if you want to come back to it at the end, we can unpack these more in detail for you. You okay. just defined conservative and liberal, and now you're using terms conservative and progressive. Sure. Progressive and liberal, I would use interchangeable. Liberal are not necessarily the same. I would say progressivism and liberalism are interchangeable, um, especially when it comes to the modern political definition. Certainly, not. Yeah. I'm not meaning classical liberalism when I say progressive. I mean somebody who would want to use government as an instrument of societal change. So I'll be using that term if you're comfortable with that. Also, please no interruptions until question time. (laughs) (laughs) But you've got a chance to talk. Would you mind, what are some significant issues that you could identify where people of a conservative persuasion and people of a liberal persuasion may differ? If you don't mind talking to each other about that, we'll get some samples to write up on the board in a second. Please discuss.
talk about some significant issues of difference. And I'd like to collect a couple up here. What are some that you could readily identify? This is a place where conservative and liberal or progressive people might think differently. Yes? Immigration. Immigration. Certainly a big one, certainly in a lot of current news. All right. Now, I am an English teacher, but reading and writing are two different thought processes. So if I misspell something, be gracious. Okay, yes? Uh, abortion. Abortion, right? I had a little bit of a conversation about this with the, the gender class. That's certainly a big thing. We've got a, a strong, strong sense towards as evangelicals. Yes? Healthcare. Healthcare. Who provides it? How do they do so? Who's responsible for the cost of it? Okay. I like how we're doing this in very neutral terms right now, right? So this is this is good. Let's keep along this track. What are some other issues where people would see it differently? Gun control. Gun control. Okay. What is the measure of that? What does that look like? Taxation. Taxation. Who gets the bulk of it? I think welfare as a whole. Yeah. The welfare system. Okay. Yeah. Welfare. We might even go into maybe safety net programs. Which ones are appropriate, which ones are not. Which are abused, which are safely utilized. Maybe one or two more ideas. Who should hold the highest office? I've got a couple. So military pay differences and who should hold the highest office. So pretend those are there. Okay, that's good. All right. that's, that's fair enough. Um, so we've gathered a little data for you. 2017, Gallup did a poll and they were tracking um, the difference between people of political persuasions over about a 20 year period. So this is two years. Um, old, you're going to see some interesting stuff from this. But just to show you, here's some major growths that have occurred between people of conservative persuasion and liberal persuasion. Global warming is one. Gun control, these are all things where there's been at least a 20-point convergence over the past 20 years. Views of Cuba. <laughs> 2017, we'd, we'd opened some trade. Fidel was dead. Maybe they're nice for Cuba. We're not probably as concerned about this in 2019. The amount of power the federal government has... It's a big divergence there. Um, in fact, if you look at this, here's the actual graph. In 2002, Republicans and Democrats were about equal on their belief the federal government had too much power. You'll see the Republican line has grown dramatically. The, the Democratic one has stayed about the same. That's an interesting graph to me. The government's responsibility for ensuring all Americans have health care coverage, whether to prioritize protecting the environment or developing energy sources, uh, relevant to what we talked about earlier, sympathies with Israel-Palestine, both or neither in the Middle East situation, and satisfaction with the K-12 public education system in the U.S.? It's going well, everybody. It's going well. You should be satisfied. Okay, so some of these are issues you would expect. Some may not be. And we could probably add a lot of issues to this as well. There are a lot of different opinions we've got when it comes to figuring out how a country and a society should work. And it is work. Now, this being said, uh, we're seeing some trends that are a little bit discouraging when it comes to these widening views. This is Pew data, okay? So now we're switching over to the Pew Research Center. Uh, and this study came from, let's see, 2017. No, that was the Gallup poll. I think this is from 2014, okay? So a little bit older, and the trend has probably progressed since then, since they started measuring it in 1994. There's a 10-question survey that Pew uses to determine your political vantage point, And you can be at multiple points in the graph. Um, consistently liberal people would have about 9 or 10 out of 10 questions identifying consistently liberal. Consistently conservative people, 9 to 10 questions, consistently conservative views. The median here shows overlap. Okay? These are the outliers. What trend can we make out of these graphs? There's a chasm. There is a greater chasm between people in political views. We are migrating more ideologically. We are holding less mixed views and more ideological views. Now, we're not totally there. There's not a 50-50 split in American life yet. But we're trending that direction. And this is worth noting. Some of the, the data they broke out from this. 66% of consistently conservative Republicans, so not all Republicans, just ones who are like 9 out of 10, 10 out of 10 on the party platform, think Democrats' policies threaten the nation's well-being. Nearly two-thirds of consistent conservatives and half of consistent liberals say most of their close friends share their political views. Most of their close friends share their political views. Among those with mixed ideological views, about 25% stay the same. I want you to note this. Let's put a pin in this because we're going to come back to mixed views. People on the right and left are also more likely to say it's important to them to live in a place where most people share their political views, though again, the desire is more spread on the right than on the left. The share of Democrats holding consistently liberal views has grown steadily over the past 20 years, quadrupling, essentially, from 5% in 1994 to 23% today. So there is a trend. We haven't fully accomplished this, but there is a trend toward greater ideological separation. And not only that, but the people who are most ideological are tending to surround themselves with people of similar ideologies. We are not overlapping with people who think differently from us. We are increasingly migrating towards people 
who do think similarly to us. It's a trend to note. Now, something else that we want to talk about. And I, you may have some questions about the data. We'll talk more about it towards the end. What about mixed views? This is Pew's commentary. Please keep in mind, these sentiments are not shared by all or even most Americans. The majority of us do not have uniformly conservative or liberal views. I think if you took a moment to reflect, you would probably say the same is true for you. You do not line up 9 out of 10 or 10 out of 10 on a party platform. You probably have some nuanced ideas. Most do not see either party as a threat to the nation, and more believe their representatives in government should meet halfway to resolve contentious disputes than hold out for more of what they want. Yet many of those in the center remain on the edges of the political playing field, relatively distant and disengaged. The most ideologically oriented and politically rancorous Americans make their voices heard through greater participation in every stage of the political process. The people who are most ideological are most engaged and are most vocal and are working to create the most change. The people who are mixed tend to stay silent and sit it out a little bit. Okay, so one more um, set of trends that I think would be important for us to look at is generational drift politically. And there's a little bit of a spread happening here. A lot of information from Pew right here. Um, essentially speaking, top of the graph is liberal, bottom of the graph is conservative. These are the years that we surveyed people, and this is where they fall into their rank. If you look at the um, millennial category with the most conservative and the most liberal, which one shows the most growth? Mm -hmm. With generation uh, X, which is between 1965 and 1980, we are also trending a little bit more towards the liberal side. If we look at boomers and silent generation, what's the trend there? More conservative, right? So essentially speaking, this is a broad brushstroke. People who have more life experience are trending more conservative. People who have been around a little bit less time are trending a little bit more liberal. According to Pew's data, the share of liberal Democrats in the public has grown. Millennials are most likely to, ide to identify not just as moderate Democrats, but liberal Democrats. <clears throat> And the share of liberal Democrats in Gen X has also ticked up, right? So we had a lot of Alex P. Keaton kind of stuff going on here with that generation, and now we're seeing a little bit more of that, that spread out. Um, about as many Gen Xers describe themselves as conservative Republicans. Boomers have become more conservative. Members of the silent generation or the greatest generation, those who fought in World War II and experienced the Depression, continue to be most likely to identify as conservative Republicans. So not only are we seeing an ideological drift overall, we're also seeing a generational drift where typically the older, the older you are, the more conservative you trend, the younger you are, the more liberal you trend. Um, if we break it out in a little bit closer detail, in the midterms in 2018, Pew found that Gen Z, Millennial, and Gen X outvoted boomers in the silent generation for the first time. This was not for lack of trying. In the boomer cohort specifically, uh, between the time they measured it, I think in 14 and the time they measured it in 18, 8 million boomers passed away. But they saw a growth of 3 million, which essentially means mathematically, 11 million more boomers showed up to the polls at 18 and 14, and they were still outvoted by the younger generations, which trend more liberal. We're telegraphing big here. Could this create an issue? It certainly could. This is why we're in generations class. Just a few more things to look at. Most millennials have consistently liberal or mostly liberal views. Um, if you're looking at the chart here, this is flipped now. Conservatives at top, liberals in the bottom. Uh, you can see the growth in this. And finally, Gen Z, who cannot yet vote, they're the students that we are schooling and raising, um, they are trending along millennial lines right now, okay? So those who approve of job, uh, Trump's job performance, millennials 29%, Gen Z's a little bit more. Government should do more to solve problems, fully 70% of Gen Z's studied right now say the government should do. And um, increasing racial or ethnic diversity is good for society, essentially identical when it comes to Gen Z and, uh, and millennials there, okay? so. This suggests a couple of problems for us. Chesterton said, I believe what really happens in history is this. The old man's always wrong, and the young people are always wrong about what's wrong with him. <laughs> the practical form it takes is this. While the old man may stand by some stupid custom, the young man always attacks it with some theory that turns out to be equally stupid. <laughs> Again, maybe a grain of harsh truth there. So we've got a difficulty. We've got an ideological drift. We've got increasing polarization, and that is also happening along generational lines. And so this might create a challenge for us as people of evangelical persuasion when it comes to our churches. So, will future generations have a home within our current types of churches? Are we looking at a church split along generational lines? I want you to take a moment to discuss. Everything we've just talked about, your thoughts on this, we'll get a little feedback from you before we dive into this data set, okay? So take a second to talk if you'd like to. Or just, just buckle yourselves in. 
And Clay, if you've got any commentary on this so far, we'll take that. So let's get a couple of ideas, and, and Clay's going to have some commentary after you have a chance to speak here. So let's hear your thoughts real quick. What are your, what are your thoughts so far? The data you're seeing, the things we're suggesting, do we have a cause for alarm? Is this a more nuanced perspective than, than maybe we're presenting here? What, what are your thoughts? What do we got? The, the people of the 60s, the young people that would have been like the millennials or Gen Xs in the 60s were very liberal. And I remind you today, they are all baby boomers who are very conservative. So you have to ask yourself, what is driving people to change their viewpoints from liberalism to conservative as time goes by? Sure. And so I, I might be disturbed on what I see, but then on the other hand, I think, well, then, then they'll learn to become <laughs> maybe, maybe it'll sort itself out. I'll be dead anyway, so it doesn't matter. Let's get another thought here. What do you got? I, I was kind of echoing his sentiments, as I think like the liberal conservative generational split is kind of found throughout history, right? So, like the boomers, the flower children, the hippies, the sexual revolution, all that stuff was like very very cutting edge, like, you know, left-wing type stuff back then. Sure. I don't know if their views have changed or if the spectrum has kind of shifted, but, I mean, it, it doesn't seem like it's, I mean, everybody's always found a home in the church, right? So uh, I'm not, like, too worried about it going forward. Okay, fair point. Megan, what do you got? I was just going to do with the millennial thing. I think a lot of it comes from our whole lives, and so a view of the liberalism is, like, well, the government can continue to take care of us. Sure. And I think that that's like comforting to younger people to think of. And mm -hmm. then you start to get into the real world and viewpoints change based on jobs and sure. actually living life. <laughs> sure. Good. Um, I think the thing that I'm curious about with there's a frame that's associated with these questions, which is whether they are true or whether they are false, there's a reality that we're going to have to live with. Mm -hmm. During the Industrial Revolution, there was a whole bunch of people who lost their jobs and they thought the world was ending. Mm -hmm. and, and it didn't. So, whatever that is, um, if we make a decision about it now, obviously it's going to be different when the reality of it actually hits us. So, I, I think for me, when I look at that, what I'd actually like to shift my attention to whenever I'm thinking about that, um, I think it's John 14, where it talks about the helper of the Spirit of Truth, mm -hmm. um, that instead of associating with any like this one or this one. I mean, God gave us something mm -hmm. for a decision. Because at the end of the day, it really comes down to what decision am I going to make today? Mm -hmm. what, what's in front of me? What am I going to do with my family, my children, my friends, my church? What am I going to do right now? Am I going to refer to this, you know, you know, am I liberal? Am I conservative? Or am I Christian? And I would much rather associate myself and ask the question of God and the spirit of truth that he's given me, mm -hmm. then pick one of those and do it in the moment that it matters. Fair perspective. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mike, we'll go to Clay. Then. A comment uh, on the radio on the way to church this morning that there's a sentiment growing that you have to be perfect to be a Christian. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know how. I don't know if that's true or not. But, uh, 
Millennials want to chime in on that. Feel Better free. not. <laughs> <laughs> Which to me would lead to the fact that they, there may not be a split in the church. They, be, they may just not go to church. Have you been looking at my data? And, well, <laughs> I did look at the data. They're growing more liberal than that. Maybe more liberal but they wouldn't go to church at all. Spoilers abound. Um, I know we've got a few more thoughts. Yes, go ahead. Um, I know there's different controversy on this topic. In Texas, I know we have a lot more Christian beliefs in, in our school system. We personally are homeschoolers, mm -hmm. and we believe that around the country, a lot of students are indoctrinated to believe the other side and be more liberal and all of that. I don't, my husband's more educated to have this conversation than me, but. Just put you on the spot, man. Yeah, honestly, in the Northeast, they're allowed to teach the seven pillars of Islam. I'd be interested to look at that. That's that's curious. Yeah. All right, so, Clay, what do you got? Oh, go ahead. Sorry, I was just gonna say so it made me wonder on that note if that has something to do with the younger generations outvoting and being more liberal, but also mm -hmm. I know a lot of like minded people like us do homeschool and it made me wonder, is that a problem too? Because we're mm -hmm. taking our children who we teach differently out and they're not able to have those conversations. Okay. Mm -hmm. It sounds like we're, we're really digging deep on this one, and I appreciate that. And we're also not prone to panic, which I appreciate. Clay, what do you have for us on this one before we get into well, death? I, I, I think there's a lot of things to observe. I, I mean, if I was a young person, I'd probably be liberal too, mm -hmm. because I've been brought up in a school system that's more liberal. I've been educated in a college that's way more liberal. I've been listening to media that, by and large, is pretty much all liberal, and what's conservative is really disparaged. And so I don't think this is any surprise at all. Uh, however, I, don't, I think from a church's standpoint, um, I, I do have faith that as individuals... Uh, mature and grow up and deal with the issues of life that they will they will become more conservative not that they will become conservative but I think they will lean more and more conservative because I think it reflects more the realities of life that's fair do you think that the and I don't know if this is true or not do you think that the younger generation <clears throat> believes what's said out in the world takes it more as fact when it's presented. I don't know. I mean, so I, I don't know. <clears throat> My daughter and I, I, she said this, she said something and I said, where did you get that from? And I think she got it from the media or something online. Facebook. And to me, it was very clear. I mean, to me, I wouldn't take it like that because... <laughs> let's, so, you see what I'm saying? Let's look at a little bit of data. Can I show you something? Let's take a look. Um, I don't think you're facing a crisis, right? We're in the locker room. No one's coming in saying the commissioner is going to shut down the league, right? Instead, we've got a game to play. How can we be best equipped to play that game? Jimmy's laughing at me using a sports metaphor because, <laughs> because he knows I like books and anime instead. Let's uh, look at this. <laughs> I think you'll take it for granted that Stonebridge and churches like it, evangelical churches, trend more to uh, overlap with conservative ideology than liberal ideology. There's also a subset of liberal and mainline churches in the United States. They will hold less orthodox views about theology and about the practice and staffing and membership of their churches. Data shows us liberal and mainline denominations are falling precipitously. According to Ed Stetzer of the Billy Graham Center for um, Public Policy at Wheaton, if this trend continues in about 23 years, there will be no attendance at mainline liberal churches in the United States. So if there is a liberal trend among young people, and the churches that would most match that liberal ideology are declining, that might suggest to us that people of a liberal persuasion will not necessarily find their way into a community that practices anything resembling Christian religious faith. I'm going to show you a big bad chart. This is from the uh, General Social Survey, which has been conducted since 1972, and there's a lot of data on here, but I just want to show you a few. Um, this orange trend line is evangelical. All right, this um, kind of blue-purple trend line is Catholic. No surprise to you, this light blue one is mainline, going down. And this greenish one is labeled what? And if you look at the data point right here, where does it sit as of the most recent survey, 2018? 
So when we surveyed people and we asked them to talk about their religious affiliation, down here you have like Jewish, other faith would be something like Baha'i or Buddhism or maybe Zoroastrianism, I don't know, um, Black Protestant, etc. When we surveyed people, we're finding an increasing trend of people saying, I've got no religious affiliation. Now, it was asked in the previous class, does it mean they're atheists? We don't know. Um, more likely than not, they are some sort of agnostic person. They believe in a God, but maybe they're not committed to a religious representation of God. There's so many religions, they're all the same, why not? So we've got more people saying that they're of no religious persuasion in the United States, and they're not finding a home in the mainline denomination. That ship has sailed a long time ago. In fact, probably part of this declining trend is because they're joining this trend, yeah? So this is a thing. Now, for evangelicals, there is some good news. Our cohort has held steady, all right? We're still roughly at 22 to 23% of respondents in the United States. But it does raise a question. If our cohort holds steady across the upcoming years, and the trend of religious disaffiliation grows, what will eventually happen? They will overtake that, that number, right? There will be more disaffiliated people than evangelical people. Now, to break it down a little bit further, here's what we did find when we, when we looked at the numbers there. Um, when it comes to millennials, 44% of people 18 through 29 are religiously disaffiliated. That number doubles. Uh, when it comes to Gen X, almost the same thing. 43% of people ages 30 to 44 are religiously unaffiliated. That was the millennial person? 44. So 43 for Gen X, 44 for millennials are religiously not affiliated, if you break down those numbers. So that presents one of two things. That is a potential problem for the evangelical church, or that's a lot of people who haven't understood the gospel yet, and maybe that's an opportunity. So let's break that down. Okay, um, what can the church do? How can we get this issue right? Again, we pitch it over to Clay. Clay, your thoughts about this? You've talked a little bit about these kind of changing seasons. <clears throat> well, I, part of me says, you know, it's good that the mainline liberal um, denominations are declining. But we, and I see that every day here at Stonebridge. We get people from those denominations all the time who have, who have for the first time understood what the gospel is all about. I was raised in one of those denominations, and I never knew what the gospel was all about. So I, I would say that doesn't bother me at all. Um, what would concern me is we've got to address as an evangelical church then what is our role in this in this change. And I would say is to continue to do what we've been doing, and that is uh, build relationships with people who don't know Christ and um, share our own personal story with them um, about what our faith has done in our life and, and what it means to be, be a believer. Those things don't really, they don't really change that much. Now, we, we talk all the time here about um, being aware of what's going on culturally and not being stuck. Um, and so we're trying to do that. And I think you see that reflected in, uh, in some of the things from a cultural perspective here at Stonebridge. We, we try and come a, uh, across to people who are new here that you are welcome. Um, we are not here to judge you. Um, we want to embrace you and we want you to become part of this family. We hope you have an encounter with God along the way. I just think those are fundamental things that hopefully we will continue to do. And Absolutely. I know we will. I asked you to put a pin in mixed views earlier, so let's return to those mixed views. Hey! <laughs> Find a picture. Those on the podcast are like, why is he so excited? Someone photoshopped Jesus' face onto a political leader. That's great. Um, so let's talk about those mixed views real quick. We're seeing that people who are ideologically more and more polarized tend to surround themselves with people of the same ideological polarization. We're also seeing that there's a growing percentage of young people who are religiously disaffiliated and are liberal. So are we building relationships with people who think differently from us? Or are we staying in our silos? This is probably the biggest thing we've got to consider for ourselves in our political approach in the church. Um, I would suggest to you this. Jesus Christ and his apostles and the church forefathers did not operate in a system where they had a voice in government. They lived under the hand of a dictator. Augustus was the emperor of Rome when Jesus was born. And things continued to get bad to the point where Nero was burning Christians alive a couple of decades later. If you look at the Old Testament, the political systems were 
often you, you had um, you had suzerians and you had their vassals. You had kings of city-states and the people who were subject to them. Again, not a place where people had a vote in the political process. So I'm about to suggest something to you which I think you can reasonably agree with but is a little bit bracing. There are some issues of modern policy where the Bible does not have clear prescriptions because they are not issues that Jesus and his apostles were encountering. If you attempt to use the Bible to directly justify your perspective on gun control, for instance, you will have a hard time considering that firearms did not exist in the initial decades of the uh, Anno Domini era, yes? Now, there are some places where the Bible very much informs our perspective on political issues, but here's what I'm trying to suggest to you. It is very possible to be a Christian, to have orthodox beliefs, and to differ from somebody else in your own church politically on one or two issues because of your background, mm -hmm. of your perspective, Experience. and the work the Holy Spirit's doing in your life. Mm -hmm. we got to be comfortable with that. Um, I would guess that you probably have more mixed views than you do have polarized ideological views. I would guess that's because you believe in a kingdom to come and a savior that runs that kingdom over some sort of earthly victory, right? So if we're comfortable with having some mixed ideological views but still being orthodox, let's practice being the body of Christ first. Let's get it right here. As Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 12, finally some scripture, you came to a Sunday school class, we got a Bible verse up here. Um, <laughs> the body is one and has many members, and the members of the body are one body, so does with Christ. For in one spirit we're all baptized, Jews, Greeks, slaves, free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Um, here Paul talks about the benefit of the different parts of the body and how we don't abandon each other. Um, you may encounter somebody who's really concerned with the words social justice. Please don't write them off. Because they want to see God's kingdom come in a way where people have a chance to thrive. You may meet somebody who's very concerned with individual responsibility. Please don't write them off. Because God has made us as individuals, priests in his image, who have some responsibility. Just because we have different perspectives on these things does not mean that we're separate. It means we're different parts of the body. We've got ears, noses, thumbs, eyes, hands, toenails. I am a spiritual toenail. <laughs> I don't know if that's true. So let's give some grace to each other to have a little bit of a different political perspective as long as we're working together and being the body of Christ in that effort because we want the kingdom to come. So what should be our goal when it comes to interacting with politics? I would suggest we don't want to make America a Christian dictatorship. We don't want to impose Christianity on every citizen in a way where they must follow it. This was tried by the theologian John Calvin in Geneva after the Protestant Reformation began, and it was a disaster because Christian morality does not work for people who have no incentive to follow it. Christ must change our hearts first. So what is our goal? Why should we be involved politically? Why should we be doing this work? Two suggestions for us. From the Old Testament, Micah 6.8, when Israel was under great strife and under foreign attack, Micah says, God has shown us what is good, and what does God require of us to act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with the Lord our God. If we approach politics with this perspective and end goal, we'll probably be doing pretty well, right? Because we want justice and mercy, and we want to be humble in the process. Likewise, Peter, writing to the church scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, these Greek um, democratic cities in the Roman Empire, before the advent of persecution, suggested to Christians, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme, remember this is a dictator, okay, or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love fellow believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Right? Again, if we are respecting and honoring the people in our government, whether or not we agree with them, if we are honoring everybody we meet, if we are giving great love to the brotherhood of believers, and if we're fearing God, we'll be getting a lot of things right, and we'll be living in the freedom he gave us, the freedom which we've got, in a modern federal republic. All right? So, Clay's got a little more commentary for us after one thing. This is where you may hate me, but I'm going to become a reading teacher for just a second. <laughs> if you want to be good at politics, you've got to have good information. One of the things that I attempt to teach my students is to look at multiple sources and to synthesize the information they're given and to distinguish between biased sources and sources that are attempting to be objective. Now, every human has bias. And objectivity is work, right? It doesn't naturally happen. But you tend to want to get your information from people who are trying to work to be objective. Um, Bob Franklin, in his study, Newsack and News Media, this is old, suggested entertainment has superseded the provision of information. Human interest has supplanted the public interest. Measured judgment has succumbed to sensationalism. And here he was specifically talking about broadcast media 
um, especially when it came to political information. I think this guy is way ahead of the, his time <laughs> because I would I would subscribe that that is exactly where we are right now. Yeah. Now, research shows us the benefit of reading when it comes to assimilating information is this. You control the rate of processing. If I am reading a piece written by somebody, I can stop and think about it. And I can compare it to previous knowledge and decide, is this right or does this smack of something not right? You do not have that control when you watch or listen to something. That information is being forced upon you at someone else's speed, and you are simply able to receive it. You must digest it later. You cannot digest it in the moment. I would suggest to you that just like a beneficial way for you to grow in Christ is to read and study the scriptures, you would be much poorer spiritually if you only came to church and listened to sermons. Amen? Like, we need to be people of the text. We need to wrestle with it, process it. You ought to be doing the same with political information you take in. If we solely consist on a diet of people who say things that we agree with, we are going to trend towards polarization, and we are not going to be thinking as critically as we could be if we are reading primary information for ourselves. And I want to give you some suggestions on this, and they are not what you think. I'm not going to tell you to go listen to John Stewart or Tucker Carlson today. Here's, here's what I've got for you. Gallup surveyed Americans and tried to ask them which news organizations are the most biased and which try to work to be least biased. And here's the info they came out with. PBS News was uh, identified as the least biased news organization. Now, how many of you watch PS PBS News? Good for you. I don't want to be bored, so I avoid them. Um, sorry. I'm sure News Hour is good. Um, right behind them is the Associated Press, which is a wire service that simply reports news. They do carry some commentators. Um, they shop to other newspapers, but this was considered unbiased. If you want to scratch and peer off the list, you can be my guest. That's fine. Um, the Wall Street Journal was considered fairly unbiased. USA Today, CBS News, ABC News. Out of these top bracket, AP, Wall Street Journal, USA Today, these are primarily print publications. Yeah? Now, MRI Simmons is a consumer um, behavioral firm, right? They give information to organizations so they can market. So they did their own thing. They said, consumers, who do you trust the most when it comes to media organizations? And here's what they found. A wide variety, a large amount of Americans trust the Wall Street Journal as a source of primary information. Again, broadcast news from ABC and CBS, which I will tell you, broadcast news networks do attempt to have some standard of objectivity because they want to capture the largest audience possible, right? They want to be able to effectively broadcast to somebody in New York City just as well as they want to do to somebody in Idaho. Now, ABC News, CBS News, BBC News, Forbes is interesting. This is a publication dedicated to kind of economics and markets, right? Yeah. A lot of people trust what they have to say. So I would suggest to you this. I'd highly encourage you to consider your diet of information and to make sure that you are reading quality content and maybe selecting from some of these well-trusted ones that you know people who may disagree with you are still reading and considering. Um, if you want commentary, uh, The Atlantic is a liberal magazine that tends to have a pretty nuanced perspective. Likewise, The um, National Review is a conservative magazine that has a pretty nuanced perspective. And if you're reading both of those, you're going to understand maybe the extremes of the conversation without extreme conversation. Um, also useful, Google offers a news service where they just aggregate what's important in different organizations. So Google surveys news organizations, sees what's important, and brings those results to you, and you can sort through the different news organizations reporting on it. That's a good way to do your research. Um, so I want to ask a question. Yeah. And we didn't do this earlier. No, let's talk about it now. I'd like to ask for reactions to the reliability of these and unbiased of these new sources, what do, what do y'all think? Do your own research, like you said, and pile information from your sources. I'll play with all three of the major uh, news cast to see, and without a doubt, ABC's become the most liberal uh, in their reporting. I don't know about trustworthiness, but I can pay it to see. But, uh, but I also watch BBC News. I get it on my phone and read it almost every day. Because I think we're made a mistake in thinking that we are the only one in the world. We need to really start paying attention to what the rest of the world thinks of us. Sure. That's very wise. We've talked about schools. Um, I was at a conference this week for better education, and we were told this. Dropping out is not acceptable in America anymore. Because you can't get a middle-class job as a dropout. Those factory jobs are gone. Instead, we've entered into a global economy. It's kind of the nature of the beast. And so we have to highly educate our students so they can be ready for informational and service-related jobs and be highly qualified. So it's important to have a global perspective if we're living in an increasingly global world, um, just to know that conversation out there. Now, before we get on a pulpit and we start talking about like different media personalities... What's tied to the most biased with Fox? 
Um, on this one, I, I cut off the ranking of media trust down here. Breitbart News. Breitbart News is also considered fairly biased uh, with Fox News. Now, you may reject this data, and you're welcome to do so. What I'm not asking you to do is consider if your favorite news organization is biased or not. What I'm saying is there are a couple that like you could read and within a safe margin of error, assume someone else of a reasonable perspective that's different from yours is also reading. You would have common ground. And that's pretty useful for us. You know, when we were eating, we'll time out on this. I want to get you to the rest. Let's talk about it in just a second. Maybe talk about it during question time. I do want to hear your good perspectives. All right, let's finish up. Let's cross the generations here. What might be the best way to approach and engage someone of a different generation on this topic? It is 12.05. Our class should officially end, so I will try to wrap this up quickly. All right. Um, Clay, if you'll give your commentary on this, and then we'll, we'll kind of wrap up and get everyone out of here. Well, again, I go back to relationship. I think it's all based on building a relationship with, with someone. Um, and um, b because, unfortunately, in politics and religion, they're so emotional that unless you have any kind of trust, if, unless you've developed some kind of trust with a level with somebody, I don't think you're going to be able to get very far in having you know a, uh, a discussion about these kinds of things. So I think that's um, really important. And um, in the in the first session of this that Jonathan did, I liked, I listened to it, I wasn't in here, but I listened to it, and I liked what he said about find common ground. Mm -hmm. I mean, we all have common ground that we can bridge, and I mean, I always, I always assume the other person has good intentions. Mm -hmm. I, th I think we, I think we do, but um, just the, the fact that we have different perspectives is, is uh, I, I don't think, is a reflection on uh, intention. So I think finding common ground, building that trust relationship with them, and 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 then going from there. Absolutely. That's a big recommendation if you interact with a non-believer from a different generation. Working to build common ground first is going to be your first approach. Affirm that they're a rational person with rational views. Um, disagree with them charitably and try to affirm as much common ground as you can. Um, First Peter 3 um, gives us the advice that we are to always be ready to give an answer for the hope that we have and to do it with gentleness and respect. Now, Peter's talking specifically about our relationship with Christ, but I think it applies to the politics that come from that relationship as well. Gentleness, respect. I'm not here to denigrate you. I want to understand you, but I also, I'm searching for truth. You're searching for truth. Here's what I understand to be truth. Let's work on this together. Now, with fellow believers, here's, here's our big encouragement to y'all. I think there is a lot of truth that boomers live through some major societal shifts that have now settled down, and, and by and large, the cohort's fairly conservative. You may not agree with politics on the more liberal millennials, but you can teach them how to navigate change. And that is the biggest thing that they need. It's how do you navigate change wisely. You did that. You did that well. You succeeded because you helped us go to college, and then when we didn't get a job, you let us move back in with you. <laughs> but you also ruined our economy, so no, I'm just kidding. That's not true. It's, it's, it's a joke. It's not a joke. I don't mean that. I, I got a job at school and never moved back in with my parents. It's fine. It's whatever. Um, older generations have a lot to teach about how to wisely deal with change. Younger generations have a lot to learn about that. So as Christians, let's agree that we can at least come together to talk about how do we navigate change wisely, right? Um, because... That is going to set us up for success and set our churches up to be places where we can receive people of different perspectives. One last quote from Chesterton to send you off. If anything's worth doing, it's worth doing badly. <laughs> Chesterton does not mean that you should deliberately be bad at tasks. Um, what he means is this. Train messy, right? Growth curve. You're not going to be great at something when you try, but if it's worth trying, you must keep doing it until you get it right. We must not disengage from politics. But if we approach this with somewhat of a mixed view and advocate for that perspective, we will look like we're doing it badly to the people around us. We must do so. We must carry the perspective of Christ into the political arena and use that to inform the way we interact with fellow citizens. Furthermore, Chesterton said uh, elsewhere in the Illustrated London News, it's a good sign when a nation is doing things badly. It shows that all the people are doing them. And it's a bad sign in a nation when such things are done very well, for it shows that only a few experts and eccentrics are doing them, and the nation is merely looking on. Let's be bold. Let's do things badly. Let's learn from the process. Let's be gracious about the gospel as we go. Now for your questions. Uh, at this point, if you have an obligation you must leave, please feel free to do so with grace. If you'd like to stick around and talk about some of these data points, we got data for you. So we're here for you. I got 10 minutes and I got to pick up kids because my wife is the children's minister. Okay, let's start over here. Yes? Two things. Yes. One, what was the 
was the statistic? 66% Okay, so you're talking about the millennial and Gen Z data, and roughly 70% of Gen Z think government should do more to relieve social problems, and about 67% of millennials think the same. So my thought is, with that same perspective focused on the church, are we going to become non-relevant? I mm-hmm. think that if that is the attitude mm-hmm. that they're looking and wanting to see, what are you doing to help society as a church? So I, I think that's a big thing. I, mean, I know my kids are 32 and 29 yeah. grew up in the church. Their focus is what are you doing? Are you just meeting together or are you actually doing anything? So I think that's mm-hmm. hugely important for us to look at for the future. So is there anything like that? There's ever I I can help anybody wants to become a registrar to go out and help people get registered to vote, mm-hmm. run for precinct chair, register, vote, vote, vote. If you have an opinion, you should vote. Absolutely. That's a great Thank you for saying that too. I really do appreciate it. That's so good. What else do we have? Yeah. Um, I just want to preface this by a single data point, uh, but the news stuff a few years ago. You want to go back to it? Yeah. Um, a few years ago, I started a company and got a lot of a lot of press. I was on NPR and NBC and all the major news channels. Um, we were actually in Forbes, and it did really well. Um, well. One of the things that I kind of realized going through that whole process was what the news cycle was about, mm-hmm. and interacting with the people personally and finding out, okay, what is this about? And for them, like the people, there was a person who came, sat down, and interviewed us, found out what we had done and what was going on. They had a deadline that they had to meet. It was very apparent mm-hmm. in the entire conversation. They went back and got our story completely wrong. Um, like, thought there were major things that were in there that was completely inaccurate. We called them and were like, hey, uh, this isn't really what happened. And they were like, yeah, it's already printed. We're not going to retract it. Uh, and like that, that, that was the LA Times. That was the biggest one. It was just wasn't even close. Forbes wasn't even close. Um, the only one that I could say that was close was when we were on air. Uh, we were at ABC, and we did a, a piece on there. And that was like probably the most natural because it was us. Mm-hmm. talking mm-hmm. Um, but I guess my experience of all of that is just it becomes even first hand from the person that's interviewing it they have their own agenda they have they're, they're going to print they're, they need to get get their, their job they're trying to get done and if as long as they print content that is their job is to make content and get it out into the world and they're not super interested in always making sure that it's 100% correct they just need to get content out of the world like it's close or even if it's just had something to do with something that might have happened, that's good enough for them. So just single data point, but in my experience, yeah. that was just what I experienced going through that. And it was kind of like, it was hard to be like, oh, okay. I'm that's- sorry I'm sorry to hear that you, you got unfair coverage. And I think that's that's discouraging to hear. Um, uh, it was I, just, people just trying to get, they were trying to make a living. They just had a job that they were trying to get done. Sure. I understood that. And it was just, it was like the reality of what was going on. Like, okay, we were content. The other thing was, is um, I noticed that a lot of the times that content was then copied and reprinted by other people's organizations. So it was getting third hand in their perspective on the first person's perspective, which wasn't right either. So it was like laziness and miscommunication. Yeah. 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 yeah, it wasn't any kind of malice. They were trying to get it wrong. They just I weren't paying attention. I think that's why it's important to have a longitudinal view on stories. Um, so you're, it was business news, it was entertainment related, they were doing a piece on you, they weren't going to come follow up with you. But if we're tracking national issues, that'll get repeat coverage. And so it's probably worth paying attention to the trends and continuing to check in on the yeah, story. Yeah, it's a single Yeah, because a good yeah. news organization worth their salt will, will bow to print a retraction because they want the trust of their readers. So it does sound like a pretty crappy situation. I hate that was the case for you. Yeah. Uh, I think probably... If there's a longer-term story, it's still worth tracking um, and trying to at least give some grace on. But yeah, okay, yeah. I think that goes in line with 24-hour news cycles. Sure. Longer. 24 hours is like 24 seconds. That's why we have really shoddy, unverified reports that come out by major news networks and major news organizations. When you're talking about the print uh, organizations, mm-hmm. they tend to get a little bit better because they have more time to Sure. Yeah. Probably 
probably speaks to a virtue for us that we need to be patient with understanding information. We shouldn't take the first stuff we hear right away, but we should, over time, process, digest, and assimilate that understanding. So, being a parent of late has really taught me this principle, seek to understand before seeking to be understood. Mm -hmm. Because if I just go Fox News on them, then there won't be any contextual relationship at all. Okay. And so I really find that it is necessary because of my love for my children to talk a lot less and to get them to talk more. And for them to really be, be okay for me to just listen to what they have to say and not challenge it, but, but in, instead to kind of it, it encourage them to say more. Uh, because sometimes um, if someone knows that you're not interested in what they have to say and they, that you're really just looking at the relationship as another opponent, then I don't think there's going to be any any first either three there, yeah. you know. Uh, so yeah. if in fact our goal is to, is to be attractive to those who are unchurched, then I think we have to change kind of maybe the way that we were, uh, you know, we were raised, do as I say, do as you're told. We were taught about, you know, obedience and uh, not necessarily tolerance. And what you're doing such a great job of, of bringing to the table is tolerance is not necessarily agreement, mm -hmm. but it promotes common ground, mm -hmm. right? Just to mm -hmm. be able to say, well, I, I want to listen to your ideas and how you formed them. And uh, I want to know what's important to you. I appreciate that. We should talk afterwards because I want to teach my children to do as I say. Um, <laughs> so if you can pass that one down to me for like the three-year-olds. He's going to conservative. He's falling off the cliff. Can you pan back down on that? Yeah, totally. Full disclosure. Fox News and Wall Street Journal are owned by the same conglomerate. Sure. 21st Century Fox. So, but where I want to go is it seems that these guys are are focusing in on a group of certain viewers uh, so they can sell mm -hmm. uh, for their advertising. But mm -hmm. on the church side, are we being careful not to do that? I mean, or are we seeing churches focusing in more in on certain... Like selling to, to the people who would like be... what the news media is doing. That's fair. Like, are we target marketing or are we trying to open it up to people? Sure. Yeah. Or is that a dangerous thing to to do for churches? Yeah. And I would say Rupert Murdoch's a smart guy. He knows the Wall Street Journal is going to get revenue in a different way than Fox News is. And he knows enough to put a firewall between himself and the Wall Street Journal's editorial team. But um, yeah, no, it, it definitely makes sense. Every one of these organizations, probably except PBS News, makes profit from the news, right? PBS is a nonprofit organization. Uh, and when you're making profit from something, you definitely want to get revenue. So it, it can be yeah. tempting. Sell advertising. I just, uh, I, I, like I just love Paul's perspective in First Corinthians, where he pretty much says, you know, I I become all people, or all, all things, things to all people, people for mm -hmm. the sake of the gospel. And I think that's always a good thing I try to come back to is like, how do I become someone that I don't agree with for the sake of the gospel? What does that look like in our day? You know, he said he became a Jew, he became a slave, you know, all these different people who live different lives, he became those people just for the sake of the gospel. And I think a lot of times, um, you know, our goal isn't that, it's, you know, to win a conversation or whatever. Mm -hmm. And I think it's it's hard sometimes to, so how do I become that person enough so they, they can, like, win them over for the sake of the gospel? It's always a good perspective. I don't know how sometimes. But <laughs> right. It's a, you know, it's, it's something to always kind of fall back on, in my perspective. I know pagers are going off for those who have young kids, so um, we'll, we'll call this a day. Thank you for gracious discussion, for good perspective, for great engagement. Oh, yeah. <laughs> love this church. Love you guys. Thank you for Next week, we are talking about...